Acts chapter 28, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts chapter 28. Now before you get a little teary-eyed and see that this is the last chapter uh, of Acts, we've been in Acts since June of last year, um, and so we just felt like that deserved a Greatest Hits album. And so we're going to have one more message next week uh, in Acts to consider from the very beginning, what are, what are the things that the Lord has taught us? A way of summarizing how he uh, began this work in us over a year and a half ago. If you remember over a year and a half ago, we were a part of a different church through this series. The Lord has launched us out to be an autonomous church here on the northwest side of the city. So a lot has happened. Um, I have another child uh, since Acts started, so life <laughs> takes place um, during the Acts series, and we're grateful for, for that. Um, and so please don't be, don't be scared. We have one more uh, week to be in this together. Uh, Acts chapter 28, again, we'll begin in verse 1 and go through uh, the chapter. If you remember, Acts begins uh, Luke addressing uh, us, and particularly addressing a man named Theophilus, addressing him as a friend, addressing him as somebody that he wants to speak truth and life to. And so he writes to him to speak to him about the ways that God uh, has been working and moving. If you remember, Luke has written one of the gospel accounts. So this is him in his second volume, if you will, of all of the things that Jesus began to do and teach is what Luke says. And he writes with a particular purpose in mind to his friend. The very beginning of Acts reads this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus' first instructions in Acts are for his disciples to wait. Our favorite instruction, isn't it? Wait. Be still. It's, it's fair to say that therefore throughout Acts there is this story of waiting, an identity of the church by God's Spirit, filled up by God's Spirit to wait with patience. And they wait in particular for the Holy Spirit until the next chapter. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God to lead, equip, encourage, and guide Jesus' church to accomplish Jesus' purposes, which Luke summarizes right there. What are Jesus' purposes in verse 8? To be witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. Today we'll read Luke's conclusion of this call that God has upon his people, and we have seen his invisible hand lead us to this point through the church. And so Luke chapter 28, verse one and following, read this way. These are the very words of God. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Verse three, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius, hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island and ship, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at uh, Syracuse, we stayed there for three days and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regama. And after one day in south and spring up and on the second day we came to Pertuli, maybe that's how I pronounce it, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as Forum Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Verse 17 after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no room for, there was no reason, rather, for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that every, everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without Hindrance. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you today that we're, we're not coming to hear what the latest idea is that seems to be working. We thank you that we haven't gathered in this place because our ears are itching to hear something fresh, something new, something invented just this year, hot off the press. Oh, we thank you, God, that what lays before us is the good, good story, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We pray, would you protect our hearts from getting too creative, too inventive with the ideas and problems that we think that we have. We thank you, Father, whatever issue we face today, you have already answered the bell with your son, Jesus. And so forgive us. Forgive me. Oh, God, I, I often hope to be clever in the pulpit. I often hope to be remembered for what I say and not what you say. So forgive me from the outset, from even being eager to perform. Humble me, Father, in your sight. Humble us in your sight that we might be lifted up. So help us to come to your word appropriately with a posture that is eager to hear from the one who made our very hearts and our ears and our eyes who has written a story for us, who oversees, as we have just sung, that you are sovereign over us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way, that you would work in us, that we would not just write good notes to apply to our lives this week, but that we would be changed on the spot, that right now the hardness of our hearts would be broken down by your spirit, that we would be softened, that, that Father, the pride that welled up in us this morning trying to get here on time, that we might be seen as a timely person. Oh God, break those longings in our prideful hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us with the hustle in our hearts right now, eager to be done with this so we can move on to the next thing. Oh Father, help us to be still and know that you're God. Help us in this moment to be shaped in a way that nothing else can not in a preaching moment, but your word. Your word shapes us like nothing else does. And so God, be glorified. Use me, help me be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. A little context is important. Um, if you're just joining us now in our Acts series, you're cheating because we have strided together for quite some time. I'm, I'm happy to catch you up a little bit, though. Um, last week, we looked at a shipwreck. We looked at Paul being taken to Rome in shackles, a prisoner, um, on his way there because he has pleaded to have a case with Caesar. And so on the way to Rome, though, Paul's still being a prisoner. A shipwreck is before them, and something very interesting begins to happen. Paul begins to sort of exert himself as an authority, which is really odd because he's the prisoner. He's the one who starts speaking in such a way as if he is in charge. In fact, scholar N.T. Wright says this about Paul in that chapter. He says that he comes across as rather bossy. Comes across as rather, perhaps you know somebody like this, that though they are in the tight spot, though they have no wiggle room, they are the ones proclaiming some here's what we should do kind of language. Well, they're about to arrive at an island called Malta. Malta is only about 18 miles long and eight miles wide, about 58 miles off the coast of Sicily. It could have been easy to miss it, and yet this is where they crash land. 
They come to Malta and they find something very unexpected. And Luke the writer makes sure we understand how unexpected the situation actually is. Look at verse one and two again. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. They didn't know where they were. They figured it out. We're in Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. After a shipwreck, you're in great need. They have thrown everything they owned overboard and now they find themselves in an island that they soon learn is Malta and they are welcomed by strangers who Luke says were unusually kind and welcomed us all. The tension of this introduction is made clear by the word that the ESV translates into native people. The word is actually barbar oi, barbar oi. What this really means is barbarian. From the the Greco-Roman perspective, those who did not speak Greek as a first language were uncultured from their perspective. They were different. Luke then employs this onomatopoetic word. Don't you just love that word? It's this onomatopoetic word, barbaroi, which sounds like the noise that Greeks hear when someone doesn't speak Greek. May I suggest to you, few things in the scriptures better describe ethnocentrality than defining people by how they sound to you because they don't speak your language. Am I preaching to you yet? Luke is making a point here. The unexpected welcome and the unexpected kindness is because there are racists aboard. There are people who expect little hospitality from people they look at as barbarians. And so from the very beginning, Luke welcomes us into the tension of the last chapter of Acts. See, we thought we moved past this kind of thing a couple of chapters ago. Luke hasn't let go of us yet. It's incredibly uncomfortable. However, something very interesting in the story of Malta. They were colonized by the Phoenicians in 1000 BC and by 218 BC had become a Roman island. What does that mean? That means that a lot of the Maltans would have understood Roman culture and they understood the maltreatment that they received. It's not like they were blind to it. They were a Roman island who were named after the sound that people believed that they heard because they didn't speak their language. All of this to say, we would have expected and not criticized the people of Malta for not being very hospitable when a Roman slave ship crashes on their island. It would have been like, here's an opportunity, right? Here's an opportunity for us to take advantage, and yet that's not their response. Few things are more beautiful than those who have been victims of violence extend hospitality. And in this particular case, it is from those we would have never expect knowing the first century world in which they were living. With this particular idea in mind, we move into a deeper understanding of their hospitality. Look at verse three. When Paul had gathered a bunch, or rather a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Verse four, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. This is an odd little story. See, Paul is sort of joining in the hospitality, still a, still a prisoner, goes and gets some uh, wood to throw on the fire, and that piece of wood has a snake on it. Luke uses this very passive language of that the snake fastened itself, but he bit, the snake bit Paul. Bit Paul, holds on to him, and much ink has been spilt. You can imagine. Scholars love, what kind of viper was it? What kind of poison was actually extracted from the fangs? Was it a viper? What species? What genus did this thing come from? Trust me, it's awesome reading. It's incredible stuff. Suffice to say, a snake bit him who all of the people who understood that culture in that land were expecting him to die because anyone they had ever seen get bit by that snake, what? Died. There, I've just bottled up a lot of great scholarly work and that's probably missing a lot of things. Scholars all over the world are now frustrated and they don't even know why. Just about every Sunday, some preacher boils something down way too simply, right? And all the people that actually get it are like, hey, you should probably think about that a little bit longer. But I digress. So he doesn't die, and they've got to deal with that. So they thought that he was getting justice, and now actually he's still alive. So they go from he's a murderer to he's a god like that. Now we would be very wrong to quickly disregard them and go, that's so crazy. How could people do that from being a murderer to being a god? Isn't it true we do the very same thing? Something that we think is very harmful, put in the right place. We can consume it. We can have it. Therefore, it becomes our savior, not something that we look to to kill us, but something we look to to actually give us life. Luke is actually beginning to tell our story all over again in this quick little excursus about a snake. In response to Paul's presumed deity, the hospitality of the community then continues and it is extended for Paul. And then Paul reciprocates. Look at verse seven. Now in the neighborhood of that place, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. Verse 9, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Whereas initially, Paul is received in just sort of a general hospitable way and in a kind way, now we're getting a a deeper understanding of the way that he was treated. First it was a moment, then it was three days, then it was for an extended period of time, and then they show hospitality to the point of just saying, whatever you need, we'll put on the boat for you as you go. And then Paul responds in the way that is righteous to respond to. When somebody's being generous to you, you are generous to them. Hospitality is generative. It should be. The way to respond to somebody who is being kind and gracious to you is to be kind and gracious. The way to respond to someone who has extended themselves for you is to extend yourself for them. But what's really striking about this account is not what is present, but what is absent. As as these friendships begin to develop and grow, more and more hospitality is shown, One thing that Paul never does, where he does everywhere else, is preach the gospel to them. That's interesting. That's of note for us. We ought to lean in. What does this mean? Well, some people would say, don't read too much into that. He preaches the gospel everywhere. This is probably the one place that Luke forgot to write it. Yeah, but that's interesting still. 
It's interesting that in this particular place with this particular people who have extended incredible hospitality to them, faithful, always talking, extroverted Paul doesn't preach the gospel, at least explicitly here. Luke has faithfully recorded it over and over again. Well, perhaps every interaction of a Christian is not need to be explicitly preaching the gospel. Hang with me for a second. Perhaps sometimes when meeting new people, welcoming strangers, it is deeply Christian to love them, help them, pray for them, as Paul does here in verse 8. To pray for them, to help them with what they have a need for, to love them. What if, what if we were allowed to see someone as a person before we had to convert them to Christianity? What if we were allowed to see their humanity, to serve them, to befriend them, to care for them, and here even more, to receive their care for us? What if? This doesn't absolve us of a general call everywhere in Scripture, right? So if you call your mom today and go, I don't have to preach the gospel. The preacher said it. That's not what I'm saying. What the text is helping us to see is there's something deeply beautiful and deeply of Jesus to meet people's needs without forcing information in their face. It doesn't absolve us from the call, but what it helps us to see is that a Christian community, the gospel, the gospel community is about what we say and what we do. This is why we should value and prioritize the gathering of the church, the gathering of our small groups, but also serving our neighbors at Cos Park through soccer camp, also serving our neighbors at ICI if and when the CPS goes on strike to volunteer to befriend those who have a need and that when your neighbor knocks on your door and has a need that they can help meet for you, you receive that and don't act like you're bigger and better. That's community, that's neighborhood. Having been blessed and blessed these people, now Paul makes haste. He has to get back on a ship and they find a new one by God's sovereign grace. There's a ship from Alexandria that happened to be wintering there for the season. Look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, uh, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods and a figurehead putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days and from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up. And the second day, we came to Portuli. And there found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days and also came to Rome. And so we came to Rome, verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard of us, they came as far as Forum, Apius, and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when... We came in to Rome. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Luke is giving us a picture. He gets extraordinary hospitality from the people at Malta. He makes new friends there. There's this incredible show of affection in both directions, if you will. And then Paul is encouraged by brothers. All of this, Luke is giving us a picture that he is well prepared to go to Rome, where so many words, so many understandings have been given to Paul that he is going to suffer to be imprisoned and go through it again. Paul has been encouraged well on the road of obedience Paul's first order of business when he gets to Rome is to gather Jews together. His behavior is actually quite uh, notable, but kind of surprising. 
Remember, Paul has had trouble with the Jews everywhere he has gone. They've not exactly retweeted all of his tweets, right? They've been really frustrated with Paul all along the way. They have not been his friend. They have been his greatest adversaries. And so we should be eager to understand why is he gathering all these Jews together in verse 17. Yet after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or our customs or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore... I have asked to see you and to speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Briefly, Paul retells his story and usually in his defense, what he communicates is he highlights both that he has been wronged and that he is completely innocent. And he uses this great language, did you notice, of brotherhood and our people. He is identifying with them as a kinsman. He is not saying, this is what our people have done to me. He's not separating and distinguishing himself in this particular moment. He is saying, this is our hope, the hope of Israel. It's because of this hope I am in chains. Their response is quite open. Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Isn't that interesting? Paul's like, I know you guys have probably heard a ton. Let me make sure everything is clear. They're like, yo, we haven't heard anything. I don't know. What, I, no. <laughs> so Paul is like getting ready, and they're just like, yo, we, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. In fact, what we have heard, here's what they say, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you and your views, what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. It's really uh, quite alarming, actually, because Paul thinks I'm ready to defend myself, and what the Jews are beginning to say, no, it's the whole thing. It's the whole enterprise. It's the whole church. It's all of Christianity. It's whoever follows Jesus that we have heard people speak ill against. So they've heard nothing about Paul, but they have heard much about those who follow Jesus. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So they gathered, and I think it's really important, every preacher must highlight how long he takes From morning until evening, he spoke to them. From morning until evening, he communicated, and they listened, and I'm grateful for that. So if you'll give me a few more minutes of your time, I think it's quite biblical. (laughs) Here's what Paul does. What Paul does is threefold in the way that he communicates the gospel to them. First, he expounded to them. Notice that language there? That's so important. It's critical for us. The word expound really means to pull out of and explain. This is instructive for us then about what we are to teach at church in the square, whether through song, whether through readings, whether for children's curriculum, whether through small group material, whether through preaching. We expound from what is already written. We don't come up with our ideas and say, we think this is going to be helpful. We say, what does God's word say and how therefore ought we to teach it? We expound from the scriptures. We do not come up with ideas on our own. This is the hallmark of our faith as Paul and others have sort of laid the groundwork, if you will, of what it means for us to expositorily teach in all of the facets that we do so. Therefore, 
we should not just be people who have a ministry that does that, but regularly, when faced with a challenge, a problem, a question, always ask. What a Christian does is we always ask, what does God's word say about that? Not how do I feel, what do I think, what's been done before, but what does God's word have to say about that? I got a parking ticket, do I pay it? What's God's word say about that? There's a fire hydrant there. Should I park there? What's God's word say about that? I don't think I'm going to call her back. What's God's word say about that? I don't think I'm going to listen and submit and love my spouse. What does God's word have to say about that? We expound from the scriptures, not just as a mere uh, putting on in a church ministry, but as being a people, we are to expound from the scriptures as Paul and others shown us. Secondly, what he does is he testifies about the kingdom of God. Remember, they have been tasked, all of them, to be witnesses of Jesus, to communicate who Jesus is. And Jesus is king. And to testify to something means that you have actually experienced it. So as much as we expound from the scriptures, the Lord Jesus has also given you a story to tell. We communicate from the scriptures, but we said, here's what I experienced. Here's what I was going through. I was dead, and then I was alive. I was blind, and now I could see, right? That once I had anger welling up in me and frustration and pain, and now I'm a little less angry, and he's working on me, right? That he's transforming me. He's working. He's bringing new light and life and joy and the fruit of God's spirit. I'm no longer picking one of those things from Galatians. I'm learning to live in the fullness of God's fruit that he is bringing about in my life. Right, this, is, this is what we communicate too. We expound from the scriptures and we tell the story of God's grace, particularly how his rule and reign in our life is coming to bear in the goodness of the life that he's given. Thirdly, what Paul does is he tries to convince them about Jesus. He didn't just sort of put information out there. This is where it gets real challenging for us, particularly those who have sort of a modern mindset of truth like to suggest to you that not only is Paul expounding from the scriptures, not only is he telling his story, but he is doing so that they would repent and believe. He's doing to convince them, not to just say, that's kind of my story, what's yours? What's good for you? Because this is good for me. That, that's not the posture of Paul. He's not hoping to hear, so why, why is the Jewish thing working out for you? And maybe I have something to learn from that. He wants to convert them to Christianity. He wants them to bow the knee to Jesus. He wants them to repent of their sin. He wants them to have the fullness of life that only Jesus can bring. He wants them to know reality. So he expounds on the truth. He tells his story of the kingship of Jesus, and he does so to try to convince them. But even that, he does it from the Hebrew scriptures. He does it from the law and the prophets. He's not convincing by way of trickery. And one of the ways of trickery that we try to convince people is come to Jesus and everything will work out. Right? This is one of these newfangled kind of trickery. I'm trying to convince you so we'll only tell stories about things working out for people in this life. The truth of the gospel is not that things work out for you in this life. It's that it works out for you in the age to come. Right? And, and not works out for you in the way that you craft it and write it and like it. Works out for you in that eventually you bow the knee fully to Jesus and come alive to his glory, right? That's the truth of the gospel. So we must be very careful in convincing that we hold back the challenging ideas of Jesus as if we could. And say he's a God of love. You want to be loved? You want to be liked? Come to Jesus. Now the scriptures tell us that we'll be hated. So we need to talk about that too. And this is what Paul, a big thing, begins to realize. He preaches, he teaches all day long. And yet, how encouraging is it that not everybody comes to Jesus? Not, we would never wish that. But it's encouraging to me that the Apostle Paul expounds, testifies, convinces all day long. And some people are like, eh, 
I don't think so. It gives me great hope. Gives me great hope. And it should encourage us too when we feel like it's really frustrating when we share our faith. We try to communicate from the scripture. And we're trying to be faithful with our neighbors, with our friends. If they too just kind of throw up that, that's just, I don't know. It's incredibly encouraging that God works in this. Because you see, we do not preach the gospel because it always reaps the results that we intend. We preach the gospel because it always reaps the result that God intends. Therefore, we must continue to be faithful in expounding, in testifying, in convincing, and trust that the sovereign and invisible hand that saved you by God's grace will save many that you speak to. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. Verse 27, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely hear and their ears they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Notice that the possessive language from our now moves to your. After they do not hear and do not listen, those his kinsmen, once he used this familial language, now says your fathers. Though they may still be ethnically connected, Paul and his people, they are now spiritually divided because of Jesus. He expounds upon Isaiah chapter 6. One of the most profound places in the scriptures that give us a great picture of God's glory and that his glory divides a people. Because when we do not submit, when we do not come to him, when we do not embrace him, then ultimately we will be separated from him. See, remember the people of Malta. They showed hospitality to Paul and returned their welcome. Paul returned their welcome with powerful hospitality. But what Luke now begins to help us understand is though there is a cosmic welcome opened up for whosoever would come, that welcome is not eternally open. Therefore, verse 28 tells us, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Like a good expositional teacher, what Paul does is he takes a text, he applies it directly to his audience, even when it's really hard to hear. That's not a really fun passage. In fact, it gets worse when you read other translations. Perhaps you have one. The, the King James Version suggests, I think rightly, their hearts will be fat and greasy, their ears heavy, and their eyes sticky. They cannot respond with the senses that God has given them because their hearts have been hardened by their sin. Our records indicate to us that Paul wrote Rome, Romans rather three years before he got to, to Rome. So it's quite interesting to think about Paul stepping into this context, wondering, has the word of God taken effect that I proclaimed? Has the word of God seeped into the souls of these people? But it's even more profound to see that he is called to live out one of the first verses in that great letter. Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. What we see is Paul living out his faith authentically, clearly, as he promised that we all, or encouraged us rather, that we all ought to, as he steps in 
to Rome. He testifies to the kingship of Jesus. He testifies to his sovereign power. He testifies to all that he has done, even when not everyone believes. Remember, this story of coming into Rome comes after a big shipwreck. And I want to bring your attention back. So if you flip back to the left, Acts chapter 27, verse 24. One of the things that takes place that is quite memorable from this particular passage is the way that they respond when things get really, really bad. I think that's the wrong verse. Let me find the right one real quick. Verse 20, not 24, verse 20. So when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. What, what's really frustrating about that situation is that the next day, or that day probably, Paul comes and says, I had a dream. I had a dream and Jesus says, it's gonna be okay, we're, we're going to make it. And yet that's day three. Do you know when they hit Malta? Day 14. That means from day three to day 14, they're still in the storm. They've got a word and they're waiting for it to be fulfilled. And in the middle of that, to be waiting with patience, what do they have to do? They have to abandon all hope. Until we abandon all hope, we cannot receive true hope. Until we abandon all other hopes, we cannot fully bow the knee to Jesus. I wanna suggest to you with our time being thin, there are three ways Three things that we must abandon unless we, or rather, until we are able to welcome the true hope of God that we might not be like these Jews who disbelieve and walk away. First, we are tempted regularly to hope in our own ability. And whatever problems befall us, we believe that we have what it takes. What these in that ship had to do is realize no matter how long they'd been a sailor, they did not have the skills to meet the storm. Secondly, we hope too much in time one of the most frustrating adages of our time is that time heals all wounds. Time is not a savior. Time is not a mediator. Time has no power in and of itself. Just because we wait does not mean that things get better. In fact, many who deal with trauma in adulthood have abandoned something that happened to them a long time ago. It is proved to us scientifically, clinically, psychologically that time does not heal wounds. Only Jesus does. So we must be very careful to understand that time is not powerful. We are finite. Thirdly, we often hope in what we make. Can you imagine if the person who made that ship was on that boat that day? You'd be like, it's all, hey guys, we got this. It's fine. I built this thing. The glue is legit. The nails are legit. It's gonna hold together. It's another hope that we have to abandon. Too often, we believe that we are what we make. In fact, that was the line from a car company just a couple years ago. We are what we make. Our identities get wrapped up in the things that we produce. But, we hope in what we make, we fail to realize that we are not just body, but we are soul. We are not just what is of this earth, we are of a world that is not of this world. We are to follow a God who is not of this world. Therefore, we must acknowledge the true kingship of Jesus. See, when they walked away from Jesus, they weren't just saying we don't believe in this, but we believe in something else. We believe in another king, we believe in another power, but I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus is the limitless king. 
Where we have limits, Jesus has no limits. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. His power and might and ability are without boundary. Therefore, no matter what despair or issue you face in life, he alone has all authority of whatever ails you. When we hope in Jesus, we hope in one whose trustworthiness is undefeated. Secondly, Jesus is the eternal king. Isaiah said of Jesus, of his kingdom there will be no end. He is outside and over time. He does not expire. He does not get overthrown. He is never out of date. His reign is forever. His glory is without bound and without measure. He is first. He is last. He is beginning. He is end. Whereas when we hope in time, we inevitably run out of it sooner or later. Jesus is the well that never runs dry, who has an inheritance that is not of this world that gives you full and forever life in him. Thirdly, Jesus is king, body, and soul. He validates the goodness of this life but transcends it at the exact same time. He is God and man. Therefore, his rule and reign is legit. It is actual. It is reality, but it is not merely for this season and not the next because it is spiritual and physical. It has jurisdiction in this life and in the next. Whereas when we hope and what we make, those things break down, need upgrades, grow out of style and eventually expire. But Jesus gives you a body that will last forever because he is the bread of your life. When we hope in Jesus, we hope in the one who is faithful, not just in this age, but also in the age to come. The kingship of Jesus is directly associated with the hope of his people. This is why Paul said, I'm in a chain because of the hope of Israel. But look at how it all concludes Verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't this a terrible ending? (laughs) This is awful. It's at least terrible in the way that I like to write stories. You notice Paul is still in jail when the book ends? He's still in jail. He's still preaching the gospel. He's bold, without hindrance. Two years, living at his own expense, so like nobody's even helping him anymore. Living at his own expense, he keeps welcoming people who are coming to him as if they are the needy ones. And he stays in jail. For two years, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. For two years, he taught about the Lord Jesus. For two years, he paid his own way. For two years, he welcomed anyone and everyone. For two years, he was bold. For two years, without hindrance. For two years, in a Roman jail cell, Paul lived with hope. God spoke to Paul in a storm, in a great storm. And I wonder if we believe that that same hope is sufficient for a great city. Not just for a storm in the sea of a story back then, but a great city now that is tumultuous and broken and in great need. I wonder, in this spiritual life, is Jesus really your king? Is Jesus really king enough? Is he really enough for me to hope in, for you to hope in? See, now safely in Rome, Paul is still waiting for trial. He's already waited for two years. Now he has to wait for two more. Here's why I don't like this. Because I like stories with a pretty bow. I like a story that said, and then Paul, who was single, met a wife, right? 
and, and that they, they were dreaming about having children. And Paul is reading the credits over them dancing at their wedding, right? And he's telling about how they're gonna move to Schomburg and be right next to Ikea and have all of the things they could ever hope for. He never suffered again. He never hurt again. He never had to preach the gospel again because everyone believed it. His life was dope. Now follow Jesus and your life will be dope too, right? That's how I would have concluded Acts. Why? Because I'd want to convince you all that Jesus would give you the same thing. Well, what if he is going to give you the same thing that Paul has and it might also be given to you in a jail cell as well? so frustrating that the book begins with waiting for the Spirit of God to come to inaugurate the church and it ends with waiting for Paul to be liberated, for more people to be saved, for him to be proclaimed as innocent and Luke doesn't tell us. After all, this is where we like stories to end. We like stories to end with everything wrapped up and it's why within the church we always tell stories that end real nicely I, I sinned last year, but now I don't anymore. Isn't God good? I did something bad a couple of years ago, and I don't do that bad thing anymore. You should be like me. If the church is in this space to this day, along with the groaning of creation, we should not be surprised when we are between one point and another. The temptation for many of us is to believe that God is around the corner of our next vacation, of the next project being done, of a new relationship starting or one ending, and not trust that he is present with you in the in-between. Not present with you as you wait. Not your king as you wait. It is not about your ability bringing about your good, pleasing, and perfect will. It is not about time healing whatever wound that you have. It's not about making a good or a service that somehow gets you out of the rut. It's about trusting the king who could have stayed high and lifted up and far away and holy, but instead he drew near so that in your waiting, he'd be working and he'd be with you. You see, waiting leads to true hospitality and the kingly exaltation when we are not hurried but hopeful. May we be that kind of people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a frustrating story and yet it's really good because it's, fr it's frustrating because I'm a sinner and I want things to work out for me. It's frustrating because there's things in me that need to die. It's frustrating because I wanna be in control. It's frustrating because I don't wanna hope in you, I wanna hope in me. Forgive me, God. Forgive me for even thinking that makes sense. Forgive me for thinking that's what you're here to do in me. Oh God, make us a people who are undone. Make us a people who are in between the already but not yet. Make us a people who find joy in the hope that only Jesus affords even when, especially when, we don't feel like we've got it all together. Because God, I confess, when I go to someone and want to share the story of Jesus, I think it's because I have it together that your gospel is glorious. I think it's because I follow you as king that you are king. And so forgive me, God. You're not king because I follow you. Your gospel's not glorious because I believe it and has an effect on me. Your gospel is glorious because it's glorious. You're good because you're good. You're king because you're king. Now help us, Father, 
to submit and believe. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.